Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first inaugural episode of the ASBMB podcast. My name is Sam Speaks, and I am actually the president of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology this year. Um, I'm a fourth year in the biomedical science program looking to go MD-PhD in the future, and I'll be one of your hosts today, along with Jack, who I'll let introduce himself. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Jack Dowling. Uh, I used to be an undergraduate here. I just graduated in May uh, with a biochemistry uh, degree. I currently work as a research technician uh, in microbial infection and immunity, and my plan right now is to apply to graduate school uh, uh, to enter or matriculate in fall of 2023. Awesome. So we're super excited to start this podcast, and hopefully it's something that takes off here at OSU. Um, I just want to welcome you all to our inaugural podcast. Uh, we hope this can be a really, really great resource for some undergraduates, um, especially those wanting to get more involved in research and learn about some of the cool science that's happening here at OSU and beyond. Um, just as a plug for our organization, ASBMB um, is a student org here at OSU that's actually a branch of the National uh, American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology organization. Um, our goals are to connect students with lab, um, get students funding opportunities, and you know, be a part of this research community, not only here at OSU, but um, kind of broad all across the country of those involved with ASBMB at either a branch or national level. Um, and so today, here for our first podcast, we're really excited to have Dr. Adam Kenny with us, who is a postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Jacob Yant's lab, which is actually um, the research lab that I'm also part of here at OSU um, Department of Infectious um, or Microbial Infection and Immunity. So with that, I'll have Adam introduce himself, and we thank him for being here today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Excited to be here with you. Uh, as Sam said, my name is Adam Kenny. I'm a postdoctoral researcher. Um, Sam and I actually work in the same laboratory. Uh, we work in the same department as Jack, so um, we all know each other fairly well, work together pretty closely. Um, I primarily study innate immunity to respiratory viruses, historically influenza virus, but more recently SARS-CoV-2. Um, I'm, I've just completed the first year of my postdoctoral work here at OSU. Um, I also did my graduate work here at Ohio State uh, in Dr. Yant's lab. I entered into the program at in 2016 after uh, doing about three years of undergraduate research at my university. Um, so um, kind of on a similar track to Jack and Sam, very involved in undergraduate research and then uh, transitioned into graduate school. Um, and here I am. So yeah, we'll be talking a little bit about some of the work I've been doing, um, a little bit about the, the paper that we've chosen for today's podcast. Um, and yeah, if you guys have any questions or want to kick off the discussion of the research, we can get that going. Yeah, so actually before we get into the research, I was wondering, Adam, can you take us back um, to when, you know, you're an undergrad, just like many of us right now, what is sort of the path that you took to get to grad school and to get to be a postdoctoral researcher? Um, what are some other paths that students take? I know here at OSU, um, you know, it's kind of difficult to figure out how you want to get to grad school or how, what do you want to do after? So what were kind of the, some of the decisions that you had to make um, and why you made those decisions along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So to be perfectly honest, graduate school was not on my radar at all. Uh, entering undergrad, I um, was in a microbiology laboratory class and really enjoyed it and got along well with the professor and was offered an opportunity to do some undergraduate research in his laboratory um, and really enjoyed it, uh, thrived in that environment. Um, and through discussions, you know, with my mentor over the years talking about um, you know, kind of changing what I thought my career trajectory would be, 
actually entered undergrad as a pre-pharmacy major. Um, and yeah, in my senior year of college, I decided to switch and pursue graduate school. So started applying the summer between my junior and senior year of undergrad uh, into the, the first semester of my undergrad doing interviews at grad schools. Um, ultimately chose Ohio State. I really liked uh, the Myobenefical Sciences graduate program, which is uh, the program that I joined. I really liked the faculty, liked the research. Um, and then through a course of several rotations within the program, I was able to do some work in Dr. Yon's laboratory and I didn't end up leaving. So at the end of my rotation, I stayed on, joined the lab, um, and started working on my thesis research. So I would say that, you know, coming into undergrad or even in your first few years, you don't have to have a concrete idea of what you want to do. Um, just be open and adaptable um, and keep your options open. And, and when opportunities arise to participate in things, um, definitely take advantage of that. And I think that you know, the program that you guys have started here is really great because it can expose undergrads to research and kind of open up some opportunities that maybe people wouldn't be aware of. So, yeah, I think it's a really good thing that you guys are doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's also really great information. Um, one of the things that you you said in there was, uh, you know, you switched from, uh, what was it, uh, pre-pharmacy to then going into graduate school. Um, and is if anyone knows uh, Dr. Kenny a little bit, you know that he's a very successful young career scientist who has many publications. So I was curious about uh, what was what what would you say is one fundamental piece of advice or one you know turning point in your career that you think you made that ultimately led to your your success so far. Uh, well, that's very kind of you to say, Jack. I would say. Um, you know, honestly, one of the biggest things for me was luck. Um, so I think success is a combination of luck and hard work. And for me, it was luck first. And I lucked out and found something that worked. And then it was hard work pursuing it once you get something to work, you know, keep at it and, and keep pushing at it. Um, I've also been very fortunate to be in an environment where we have great collaborations and I'm surrounded by other great scientists. So I've had a lot of opportunities to work on uh, a lot of different projects, really uh, diverse viruses and systems um, that have allowed me to learn a lot of different techniques, a lot of skills, um, and allowed me to work with a lot of great people and, and do uh, some really cool science along the way. So I know you mentioned luck. Do you think it's luck in the sense that um, you found a research lab that allowed you to do all these things? And if it is, how does one go about selecting a lab when they get to graduate school? Yeah, I know. I, th I think you really just have to find a mentor who's going to be supportive of kind of the things that you want to do kind of um, it's going to be willing to let you be exploratory and try different things and, and fail at experiments and I, I've been fortunate to be in an environment where um, you know coming into Jacob's lab I thought that I was going to be doing primarily biochemistry uh, and that has turned out not to be the case at all so I think um, finding a mentor that's adaptable but also uh, being adaptable yourself uh, to, you know, realizing that where you start maybe isn't where you're going to end up. Um, and, yeah, just follow, following what works. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so this this uh, club, as you know a little bit about it, is, is really uh, designed for, you know, uh, students who maybe not, don't have as much research experience. Um, and I know since you've probably been in the Yunt Lab for, for several years now, you've dealt with you know a few undergraduates, maybe a few 
graduate students who do not have as much research experience going in, what do you think uh, really makes a good undergraduate or a good graduate student that, that has just started? What, what are the qualities that, that you would look for uh, potentially? Absolutely. I think the biggest thing is just being teachable. You know, uh, coming in with little to no experience is fairly normal. Um, like I said, I w was fortunate to do some undergraduate research, but it was in a completely different field from what I was doing in graduate school. So uh, I basically had no experience with any of the techniques that I was doing. Um, but, you know, just paying attention to the instruction around you that you get and, and taking good notes and um, just really trying to absorb everything that you can in the lab. Um, yeah, so I think just having an open mindset and being willing to, um, you know, be guided and, and when someone gives you instruction, be able to follow it. Um, there's really no prerequisite of experience that I found in my experience. I've worked with people that have had years of experience or people that when they step into our lab, it's the first time they've been in a research lab. And we've had, you know, equal success with the entire spectrum. It's just um, being able to, being willing to, to put in the work and um, yeah, work, work in the laboratory environment is really all you need. And I want to add that Adam's being very humble and having good mentors is extremely important because I was one of those kids who came into the Yacht Lab with zero research experience. Um, and I'm super thankful for Adam to, to kind of walk me through things um, over the last two and a half years. Um, so I just want to ask you know, one more question about sort of undergrads and, and getting into research. Um, for undergrads who maybe, you know, don't know any particular area that they're interested in or any sort of uh, avenue or research avenue that they want to go down, what are some ways that they can get connected to faculty um, and, and sort of get into research with having almost zero prior experience? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, first and foremost, being at Ohio State is a great first step because we have, you know, a, a massive research program. So there's really anything that you could hope to work on you can find uh, somebody that's that's doing that in this environment um, so this club is going to be a great resource because obviously you guys will be able to connect students to different faculty in different uh, disciplines but I think you know uh, just exploring through your classes you'll meet faculty that are teaching different things whether it be microbiology immunology physiology um, you know talking to your friends other students um, engaging with graduate students that you might run into on campus of just um, kind of finding out what's out there because there really is um, so so many opportunities and in, in labs across campus both um, on, on the main academic campus on the medical campus at the the vet campus so really whatever you would want to find um, and certainly I think it's been my experience that most pe most trainees and that would include graduate students and postdocs are more than happy uh, to be a resource for undergrads so if you know if you do you know you're in class with someone in their research in a research lab and you say hey like you think you could connect me to this person or would this person be willing to um, point me in the right direction uh, it's been my experience that people are overwhelmingly positive with with wanting to help people out so i think you know just reaching out and and seeing what you can find yeah i think that's that's totally true that's that's great advice even um as a research technician right now, I'm, I'm really realizing the importance of great mentorship, um, and I think OSU really excels at that in that in that field. So as a little bit of a transition into more of uh, what we're going to get into today, which is uh, your recent paper in uh, Science Advances, uh, I would uh, just ask you to go over a little bit about 
kind of what the Yunt Lab studies, what you guys focus on, um, and how that's really led to uh, this paper itself. Sure. So as I said, we have historically been interested in the uh, innate immune response to viruses. So what that means is the, the body's initial uh, mounting of a, a line of defense against viral infection. Um, and there are lots of different genes and proteins involved in this defense. Um, and a lot of labs across the world focus in on maybe one or two specific of these genes. Um, we happen to study a gene called IFNM3, or interferon-induced transmembrane protein 3. Um, this is one of the best characterized innate immune proteins against influenza virus. Um, so when I started in the laboratory, um, we were working on kind of characterizing uh, the mechanism of IFNM3 in restricting influenza virus. Um, and we were just, um, pretty much as soon as I joined the lab, we just uh, got an animal model up and running. So we had just generated an IFNM3 knockout mouse uh, with CRISPR technology. So kind of a, a rundown for people that aren't familiar with that. Basically, um, with this new at the time gene editing technology, um, we were able to uh, delete a portion of the IFNM3 gene in mice and render it uh, inactive. And for all intents and purposes, these mice now lack uh, functional IFNM3. Um, we were able to do lots of experiments in mice looking at uh, the immune response to flu infection. And one of the things that we kind of saw as really a, a, an accidental observation, um, but that was consistent was what we were able to detect uh, the presence of influenza virus in the heart, uh, specifically of these uh, IFNM3 knockout mice. And this is in comparison to what we call wild type mice or mice that don't um, lack any specific gene. They're just your, your standard laboratory mouse. Um, so this was a really interesting finding for us. We didn't really know what it meant until we did some digging in the literature. Um, and we found that there was a pretty strong connection between uh, influenza virus infection and uh, adverse cardiac outcomes, including um, heart attacks or myocarditis or inflammation of the heart, um, just general heart damage. Um, so that really got us thinking that specifically in these IFM3 knockout mice that we might be seeing um, a pretty significant cardiac phenotype, uh, and that led us to follow up on some functional studies of what, what's actually going on in the heart during uh, influenza virus infection. Um, we ultimately wrapped that paper up back in 2019, I believe, um, and although we, we answered a lot of the questions that we started out with, we kind of generated as many questions as we answered, um, and one of the big things was what the contribution of uh, infection in the heart was actually to the cardiac dysfunction that we were seeing. Um, and one thing that was kind of prevailing in the field at the time was that uh, severe lung inflammation, um, which has been um, linked with cardiac dysfunction. Um, it was pretty much just assumed that when you have a really severe flu infection, your lungs get really inflamed and that's what causes any uh, cardiac complications if there are any. Um, but since we had seen, you know, direct infection of the heart, we hypothesized that um, there could be actually this direct infection that was um, leading to some of these uh, adverse cardiac events that we were seeing. So we wanted to, to follow up and, and kind of tease out that specific mechanism. So that's where uh, we picked up with the paper that we're going to be discussing today. Awesome. Thank you for that introduction. And um, for those of you following along, the paper we'll be discussing 
is called Influenza Virus Replication Cardiomyocytes Drives Heart Dysfunction Fibrosis in Science Advances. Um, and so really this is this sounds like it was a sort of a continuation or even um, sort of a step above your previous paper in 2019, I think, was the, um, the mouse model paper that you just went over. So can you kind of, kind of explain, you know, when you're left with these questions at the end of um, a paper, how do you go about figuring out what techniques you want to use or, or sort of what are the next steps in solving the next questions? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times in science, there is a, a technique that's already out there. Or there's a tool or a reagent that's already out there um, that you can order, or you can um, purchase from somewhere, you can get from somewhere and or learn how to do this technique. Um, and, and that's really good. Uh, in this case, where we found ourselves is that, you know, we're doing these infections in mice and we have this, you know, system-wide infection. So we, we have this really severe infection in the lungs and then we get this spillover into the heart. Um, so with the system that we had in place, we weren't really able to delineate between lung infection and heart infection. So the question we found ourselves asking is, how do we investigate the contribution of heart infection um, separately from infection with the lung? And um, luckily, we um, have a pretty long-standing collaboration with uh, a researcher at the University of Minnesota, and he is an expert in, in generating influenza viruses with tissue or cell-specific restriction. Um, so that immediately came to the forefront of our minds is, uh, could we be able to generate a virus that's replication competent in the lungs um, without being able to infect heart tissue so that we could kind of once and for all look at the contribution of lung infection and inflammation versus heart infection um, to these cardiac phenotypes that we had seen. Um, so really it came down to sending an email to our collaborator and saying, hey, do you think you can make this virus? This is We, we want to use this technology. Um, it's a microRNA targeting based system. So in short, what that means is that um, this researcher, uh, Dr. Ryan Langlois, inserts uh, target sequences into the viral genome that are then targeted by cell-specific microRNAs. Um, and the, the binding of these microRNAs doesn't allow the virus to replicate in cells or tissues that express uh, those microRNAs. So uh, we chose two microRNAs that are putatively expressed only in uh, cardiomyocytes or muscle cells. Um, so we inserted target sites for those microRNAs into the influenza virus genome um, and then grew up a stock of that virus and first tested in cell culture in cells that either did or did not express these microRNAs. Um, and we saw that the, the targeting was effective. So we saw a pretty significant reduction in infection um, when we infected a myocyte-like cell line um, with the microRNA targeted virus. Um, so that gave us confidence that you know the system had worked and that we would be able to move back into our, our mouse model of infection um, and, and look at attenuation of infection of the heart. Yeah, that's, that's a really, uh, really neat system. So, so as it seems to me, you, what you're doing here is you, you're, you're, you're taking your old system with an IFIDM uh, knockout mice and you're combining it now with a um, influenza virus that um, could essentially be attacked or uh, degraded by uh, microRNAs that are specific to heart tissue. Am yes, that th that's absolutely correct. So, okay. um, you know, the, the, 
the work leading up to that of, of, of establishing the mouse model was really important. Um, and then we needed to take it a step further with uh, this, this novel tool of the um, heart-targeted virus. So yeah, you're right, we, we combined um, those two avenues to um, get the system that we had in place for this paper. Great, and so when you uh, infect uh, wild-type mice and IFIDM3 knockout mice, uh, what is your, uh, since our lab primarily does not do much mouse work, what is your initial thoughts or initial uh, experimental designs or data that you want to collect out of, out of just infecting these mice? Sure, so one of the easiest things and, and most basic things we look at anytime we do a mouse infection is just weight loss. And the reason we look at that is because uh, when mice start to feel ill following virus infection, they stop eating. Um, and mice have very high metabolism, so as soon as they stop eating, um, they will start losing weight. So weight loss is a readout um, of sickness as, you know, they're not feeling well, they're not eating, they're losing weight. Um, so that's the most basic thing, and we monitor that every day. So we infect the mice, and then um, before infection, and then every day following infection, we look at weight loss. Um, and then, of course, flu is a, a primarily a respiratory pathogen. So... And specifically because we were doing a, a, a heart uh, tissue attenuation, um, we wanted to look both at viral burden in the lung and viral burden in the heart. Um, so in addition to monitoring a cohort of mice over um, the entire course of an infection, we also uh, infect additional mice um, that we designate that will be euthanized and dissected at certain time points post-infection, and we harvest uh, lung and heart tissue and do... Um, viral titration assays to look at the, um, the quantity of, of virus in those organs. So I just want to get a little bit further into um, sort of like the outputs you get for these tests. So let's just start with viral titrations. Can you kind of explain a little bit about why you would do a viral titration? What, you know, what actual number as, a, as an output are you reading? And what does it tell you about those mice? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, for, so when we infect a mouse, we assume that there's going to be some amount of virus in the lungs or in the heart, in the case of the IFM3 knockout mice, but we don't know how much is there. Um, but we can figure this out by um, taking the tissue, homogenizing it, performing serial dilutions of that homogenate, and then um, growing it in cell culture um, and using immunofluorescence to stain for the presence or absence of virus. And that allows us to really easily, um, based on um, you know the, how much uh, the quantity of the homogenate that we had to um, determine the quantity of virus in the lungs based on um, the calculations from our serial dilutions. And in terms of the amount of virus that we see in the lungs, it can be anywhere um, in the millions to tens of millions of viral particles that we're um, isolating from mouse lungs. So it's uh, really quite a lot of virus that we're getting. Great. Uh, so, so as I'm as I'm reading here, I see that you know uh, some of these assays were definitely employed. Uh, in the um, we see that with the IFIDM3 knockout mice, uh, most of them uh, suffer from illness and have to be uh, euthanized or or die from infection. And so I. W was wondering if you could go over some of the initial results that you were getting and and what questions that was starting to bring up at the same at the same time from these assays. Yeah, so in, in this paper specifically, um, we saw a similar trend to what we had observed before that IFN3 knockout mice were 
uh, significantly more susceptible to infection. So if you look at the, the weight loss and the survival curves, you see that the wild type mice recover fairly quickly following infection, that they um, all survive infection, whereas it's a completely lethal infection, the I3 knockout mice. One of our very early questions is whether or not uh, this heart uh, attenuating heart infection would have an effect on the overall amount of illness that these mice experienced. Um, and we ultimately didn't see a difference between um, the heart-targeted and untargeted control virus and the IFM3 knockout mice. So they lost comparable amounts of weight and actually um, mice in, in both groups were infected with either of the viruses, both um, equally completely succumbed to infection. Um, and that led us to look at systemic levels of inflammation because when we think of illness associated with virus infection, one of the things that comes up is systemic inflammation, which is something that actually makes you feel sick. Um, and we see that um, between the two viruses, the levels of systemic inflammatory cytokines is uh, statistically indistinguishable from one another. So what that tells us is that there might be some contribution of heart infection to cardiac dysfunction and pathology, but because these mice are still experiencing such a severe lung infection, any contribution to morbidity that we would see would just be masked by the severe lung infection that we see in these mice, which um, wasn't entirely surprising to us, but it was something that um, we wanted to confirm before we moved on to any other experiments. So when you confirm then that, you, you know, your infection levels between, between mice or, or the actual phenotype of infection uh, seems to be pretty consistent, then how do you go about now figuring out or, or answering your original question, which was, what is, you know, the impact of direct infection of cardiomyocytes? Is that what triggering these heart problems? Or um, is it sort of a cytokine storm within the lung uh, that's now, you know, influencing whatever irregularities um, or problems you see in, in the heart? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we actually did a little bit more um, characterizing in the lungs. We looked at, um, like I said, lung viral burden, inflammation, both in the lung and systemically lung pathology. We saw that all of those were unaffected uh, by the, the heart attenuation of the virus. So really across the board, we have equal lung infection and pathology. So now when we start getting into some of our functional readouts of heart function, um, if we do see differences arise, we can correlate that back to differences in heart infection if there are any. So what we wanted to first confirm was whether or not um, we had seen in cell culture that this virus was attenuated in a myocyte-like cell line, but we also wanted to confirm that the virus was actually attenuated in the heart uh, in these mice. Um, so as I said, we collected hearts and did viral titrations, and we see a significant reduction of uh, viral load in the heart with this uh, attenuated virus. So this was a really nice confirmation because now we have, like I said, the lung infection that's unchanged, but we have a very striking difference in uh, heart infection. So now we can begin to look at things um, like pathology and fibrosis in the heart as well as um, cardiac function in general to see if any changes are arising. Um, and something I want to mention is that anytime we're doing um, any kind of animal modeling of infection is that uh, really the end goal of what we have in mind is, is uh, the advancement of human health, right? So like I said, even though this was a really severe infection, in mice that they ultimately succumb to, that might not be the case in humans. So even if we aren't um, getting this dramatic reduction in pathology um, in these IPM3 knockout mice by attenuating infection in the heart, if you think clinically for humans um, who 
are probably going to recover from a flu infection. If you have virus infection of the heart or heart pathology, um, that's something that could be, you know, a lifelong consequence is going to be really significant. So even though we don't see, uh, didn't see this like really dramatic difference in survival or pathology um, right at the beginning of the paper, um, it was still something that was important to us. We wanted to characterize uh, the heart functionality because thinking clinically for, for humans, this is still something that could be um, extremely relevant to understand. So when you talk about, um, you know, you're looking into heart to see what's happening, what kind of uh, measures of heart function are you using? And then what was sort of the, the data that you gathered with these measures? Um, yeah, so in terms of, so again, we do, we do viral titration in the heart to look at the presence of the virus. Um, we can also do um, histology, so we, we can collect heart tissue and fix it and send it off for, for staining and imaging, and we can look for uh, the presence of virus in the heart. We can also look for um, fibrosis in the heart, which is a, a repair pathway kind of unique to the heart in that when heart cells uh, undergo death, they don't re, uh, cardiomyocytes don't replenish. So if you do get um, significant death uh, of cardiomyocytes in the heart, um, you get what is called um, fibrotic healing. So the heart does the best that it can to repair itself. Um, but at some point, the, that, that healing is going to fail or can even be pathological if you get overproduction um, of the, these fibrotic lesions. So we, were, um, we looked for the presence of fibrosis. Um, we looked for some biological markers of cardiac damage, um, including um, troponin and creatine kinase, which um, historically have been used to look at um, cardiomyocyte, cardiomyocyte function and have even been... Um, troponin levels have been used clinically to look at um, indicators of heart attack and cardiac damage. So we looked at that. Um, and then to look at cardiac function, um, we actually did electrocardiograms or EKGs on the mice, which um, consisted of uh, hooking the mice up to uh, electrical leads and monitoring their, their heart rate. And um, if you've ever seen you know a medical show or looked at any kind of um, medical textbook where you see the, the, the EKG peaks. That's really what we were looking at to see if we could see any irregularities popping up in these mice. Um, and in fact, that's what we ended up seeing was that um, the IFNM3 knockout mice, as we had seen before, um, had pretty pronounced cardiac electrical deficiencies following infection. Um, and these irregularities were almost completely reversed in mice infected with the heart attenuated virus. So even though we had this really severe lung infection, uh, when we blocked infection of the heart, we saw that cardiac function was largely preserved. So the conclusion that we drew from that was that um, direct infection of the heart and cardiomyocytes specifically uh, is really critical to the development of cardiac dysfunction because you can still have really severe lung infection inflammation um, and not get the induction of cardiac irregularities without infection of the heart. So this was uh, a really interesting result for us because this is kind of um, challenging the dogma in the field that lung inflammation alone is the, the sole driver of cardiac dysfunction. Um, so that's kind of where we wrapped that paper up. And again, um, as often happens in science, you generate more questions than you answer with things. So now um, we're kind of getting into... Um, 
what's happening following infection. Why, um, why do we see this cardiac dysfunction? What's happening with the cardiomyocytes? Are they dying? Can they resolve infection? Uh, does their functionality change on a cellular level, uh, at a tissue-wide level? Um, so um, a lot of interesting questions left to pursue. Um, but yeah, I, I think I kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but no, that's that's that was uh, a great you know great summary of the last you know half of the paper. I think um, you know you have this really interesting model, but again, I think you know now that you're able to tease out these this this sort of heart uh, specific tropism um, and whether heart dysfunction is really originates from. Uh, lung uh, infection or, or whether the heart actually needs to be uh, infected itself is, is really interesting. I think uh, a, a question that I, that I have is that, um, you know, you talk a little bit about in the introduction that influenza itself has been observed, uh, has actually caused, or the readouts have actually been that you've increased myocarditis, uh, increased uh, heart uh, damage at autopsy, and I'm wondering if they took any of those samples uh, to see if that influenza was actually in, in the heart uh, present at, at death? Um, there have been, you know, sparse reports of that. The, the problem, again, is that it's kind of a, a widely held belief in the field that it was primarily, you know, the lung infection. So I think it's pretty rare that people are, are taking, clinicians are taking, you know, uh, a lot of samples from the heart. Um, anytime you're, you're looking at sampling from, patients at autopsy, there's a, a lot of red tape to cut through. So um, that's a big hindrance in terms of obtaining samples. Um, and I think it's just, you know, something that historically hasn't really been, that people haven't been looking for specifically. Um, we're hopeful that, you know, w with some of the work that we've done, that maybe the attitude towards that will shift. And that's something that thinking about how we're treating virus infections, specifically flu infections clinically, is that Maybe that's something that needs to be more prevalent um, that we need to be looking out for. Um, and I will say another roadblock is that um, a lot of times, you know, if someone is, is ill but doesn't succumb to infection, obviously um, they're not going to want to subject themselves to taking any kind of sample from their heart. So I think that we have been limited to cases of autopsy, and there could be all kinds of questions about infection dynamics maybe by the time the person succumbs to infection um, the virus has been cleared from the heart or all of the virus infected cells have died and there are no longer um, there's no longer a detectable virus in the heart at that point at the, at the time of death so there are a lot of confounding factors um, but you know hopefully especially as we're kind of in the golden age of research right now and of medicine as technology advances hopefully those are things that um, become more at the forefront of awareness and things that we can look out for to kind of tailor and, and target treatment of individuals um, infected with influenza virus. The, this is a very real and, and concerning complication of, of infection that um, deserves to be treated as such. Awesome. I, I think you did, you know, an amazing job setting up the paper and, you know, bringing it down in a way that not only I and your lab can understand, but also Jack and the audience. Um, and one thing, you know, I think is on the mind of a lot of undergraduates, uh, when they're getting into research is like, um, you know, why do binge research? What is going to happen? Um, you know, we're investigating influenza at a very molecular level, um, and, and parsing apart why we might see certain disease in humans or certain phenotypes in human disease. 
what do you think, uh, you know, medicine in the future can take from a study like this uh, and develop into either a therapeutic or, or more information um, that physicians use could, or physicians could use to treat patients with influenza? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, a, a big thing is just awareness and knowledge. Um, so it, it's the goal of really any basic science to advance human health. And I think for these studies in particular, um, if, you know, if you tell the average person, oh, we're, we're studying the molecular underpinnings of cardiac complications of influenza virus, that's not going to mean a lot to them. But if you tell them, hey, we're trying to understand why, you know, if you get really sick with the flu, you might have heart complications. Um, and, you know, down the road, that's going to lead to these really adverse things. Um, things like vaccination efforts where you're telling people, hey, you know, the flu isn't just something that you get you know, the sniffles for a couple of days or you have to rest for a couple of days and then you bounce back. These can have um, really severe uh, lasting consequences. Um, so I think, you know, in that way, it's really important to understand the basic science of it so that that can down the road guide um, clinical treatments, but also just, um, you know, getting information out to the public that, hey, this is important. Um, you know, certainly get your flu shot every year, you know, we just kind of emerged from another pandemic where there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of feelings about whether or not, you know, vaccinations should be enforced or any kind of infection prevention. So I think um, just getting people to understand that, um, you know, this is a, a really serious matter. This is something that can be really important that maybe it's something um, that you wouldn't think of. Certainly before I started working on this project, I had you know, no awareness of any kind of, oh, you know, you get infected, you get the flu, and that could damage your heart. But certainly um, working on this has been very eye-opening to some of those things that you don't consider when you get sick. So I would hope that just, um, yeah, that it can help in the, in the public awareness of, of what's going on with some of these infections. Yeah, that's, that's uh, very true. And I think that this study is exactly that is a very eye-opening study. Um, really challenging the way we think about, you know, uh, respiratory infections. Um, and I think definitely this could be applied to, you know, even in COVID itself. So I think maybe that's where you could be going in the future. But I would I really like to thank uh, Dr. Adam Kenny for coming on today. It was a really um, great first uh, first podcast here for ASBMB and, and you, Sam, as, as the president uh, as well. So, um, yeah. Yeah, we've had an awesome time. Thanks so much, Dr. Kenny. We really appreciate it. It's weird to be calling you Dr. Kenny, like sitting here. Um, thanks a lot, buddy. It's, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure working in lab with you for the last two years. Um, and hopefully, you know, this podcast is something that not only Jack and I can continue, but um, some of our members, if they're interested in, in hosting a podcast, um, you know, it's something that we can try to work towards doing more frequently in the future. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. This might be the first and last time that I ever get to talk into a microphone on a podcast. So happy to be here and uh, I wish you guys all the best with uh, your club and with, you know, getting your, your podcast off the ground. I think you guys are doing great work. Um, and I just want to say I'm really impressed. Um, I know Jack, you're no longer an undergrad. You, you graduated, but I think, you know, the, the level of engagement that you guys have shown um, as undergrads and now in moving forward in your scientific careers is uh, very commendable. So Congrats, guys, and thanks again. Thanks. I appreciate it.